And if you have a Bible, if you turn to uh, 1 John 3, verse 1. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. Well, let's pray first. I'd like to pray, if you don't mind. Father, we just ask you, Lord, uh, that you'll open your word up and open our hearts up to receive your word. And we know that only you can open our spiritual eyes to give us revelation to what we need to continue to serve you and to draw near to you. And we just ask that you'll do that. For us tonight, and I ask you, Father, that you'll help me and and have your hand on me and, and enable me to say words in a way that will help this congregation, my brothers and sisters. And I just ask that you'll do all that for us in Jesus' name. So you should be there now. Uh, we'll just read First John three one, and John writes, "Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God." Therefore, the world knows us not, because it knew him not. And I'd like to say, built into the fabric of human nature, it's hardwired into every human being that's ever been born on this planet, is the desire to want the love and acceptance of their father, whether it's the earthly father or the heavenly father. And I want to focus for a minute here on the Heavenly Father. And that's the greatest, knowing the love of the Heavenly Father is the greatest need of every man and woman. There is no greater need than to know in a real way the love and care and acceptance of the Heavenly Father. So you may be here tonight and coming in, you you may think that your greatest need is to have a new home or your own home, or a prosperous business, or a cute boyfriend or girlfriend that may one day become your mate, or maybe a healing, maybe a deliverance from some sickness, or you may think your greatest need, and this is the way I was before I came to the Lord, my greatest need I thought was to feel good. And so you look for that in drugs, alcohol, sex, or just a lot of having a lot of friends makes you feel good. You think that's the answer. Right, And you may think your greatest need is to have an understanding spouse, kids that obey, or just a close personal friend. Some people, they think that's their greatest need. And the list could go on, you know, we, whatever somebody might think is their greatest need. But I would say without the restoration of the love and acceptance of the Heavenly Father, you can have all of that. And you will be left with a void that can never be filled. All of that other, it will leave you empty. In fact, most of what I just listed is what the world uses to try to fill that void, isn't it? But it can only be filled in one way. And that is to know the Father's love. And God, I believe, has created that need to be our supreme need. Jesus said this in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. He said, this is life. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God. And to know him, we'll see, is to know his love, first and foremost. And he went on to say, in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. He to understanding this is, we are made in the image of God. And I would ask you, how did God exist before he created a world or angels or before anything else existed. So we worship one God, don't we, who has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's critical, eternally. We got a heresy going on at prison, a big popular group. It's a modalist, united Pentecostal group, and they say they're not all three eternal. And that'll send you to hell to believe that. That is no small thing. It will. I'm not going to get into that tonight. But God is a triunity. That's where the word Trinity comes from. And that one triune God existed in eternity past as the Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father in return through the communion of the Holy Spirit. God is one eternal triune community of love. And these groups that want to make God like Islam, the UPC group, that he is just one, 
There is no son in eternity. And how, how is God loving himself? You can't love yourself. You can't just be one and have love. And Jesus prayed to the Father this. He had eternal love. John seventeen twenty four. He says, Father, he says a few other things. And he says, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. That's what Jesus said. And the same love the Father had for Jesus, he goes on, if you read that high priestly prayer in John 17, to pray that that love will be in you and me. That same love of the Father that he experienced. And here's what he said. He said, I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it. Listen to what Jesus said. That the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them. That's us. Not a different love. He said the same love that you have loved me with. And I'm not, I can't get off on this tangent, but we experience the love of Jesus because by faith we become united to him. We become one flesh, Paul says in Ephesians 5, doesn't he? And God sees us in Christ. And that's why he loves us. Because of our union with Christ. So... He prayed that we would know and experience the same love of the Father he had and were made in his image. God, like I said at the beginning, has hardwired us to receive. We are created to receive and give love, aren't we? We really are. But not just any love. That's where the world, they're cut off from the love of God. And they've so distorted and perverted what love's all about. But we have been created, especially us in this room, that are born again, to, to receive and give the love of God. And it goes back to the garden. You know, God created man. He placed him in the garden to receive and experience and joy in his love. And to give it back to him. And guess what? They did, didn't they? We read that Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the cool of the day. They knew his love and fellowship then, didn't they? They knew that God loved them and cared for them. And he talked to them, didn't he? Until one day the serpent appeared. And if you think about it, what was the devil's one goal in the garden? To get Eve to doubt, question, and reject what? The love of God. It really was. And he says to her, here's what he says to her. Yea, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Let me tell you ahead of time, that is not what God said. He's putting a negative slant on what God said. He's saying, look at all these trees. And God's saying, you can't eat out of all of them. And what does that do? That starts making God seem selfish and less than generous, doesn't he? Twisting the words of God to make him seem selfish and prohibiting. Here's the thing. God was generous. It wasn't, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Here's what he really said. He said, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. That's love. But he said, there's one tree I don't want you to eat off of. Tree in the midst of the garden. And trust me on that one. Just trust me. Don't eat of it. And when Eve quoted what God said about the tree to the devil, she said, he told us that you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's what she told the devil. She had a little bit in there, but basically she had it right. He never said anything about touching it. But what's Satan's answer? He tells her right away. He says, God lied to you. That is what he said. He says, you can't trust him. You shall not die. Isn't that what he said? You shall not die. He lied to you because he said you would, didn't he? Trying to hit that trust. And he's withholding good from you because God knows when you eat of that tree, you'll be like him. And love would do that, wouldn't it? It wouldn't withhold something from you. It wouldn't lie to you like that. And here's what happened. Adam and Eve took their love and trust that they had in God and they placed it in another, didn't they? they? Placed it in the devil. And by a deliberate choice, they rejected the love and care of God and said, this in essence, we will obey the lust of our new father who gives us such liberty. Satan. And I would say tonight the devil has been attacking the loving fatherhood of God ever since the garden. Ever since then. And do you know who I think he attacks the most? He's working on the world. We'll see that in a minute. But he attacks us in here. 
It's more than people will admit that they, they sometimes wonder, am I really a son of God? It's just too much to believe. Does God the Father really love and care for me? And it affects us. But like I said, he started in the garden, and he's moved right on in the Bible. When you look, just for example, at the people of Israel, and here God had given a marvelous display of his love, hadn't he, in delivering them from the Egyptians in a miraculous way, in power, took him out of that country, out of that bondage. And what happened? They started doubting what? His love and concern from them. And they said things like this, can God, the one who had done all of what he did, can he furnish a table in the wilderness? Can he give bread also? The Father isn't going to give them bread? Can he give bread also? Can he provide, can he provide flesh for his people? And they said this, he brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and cattle with thirst. Now, God said, that's an insult to me. And he put up with it quite a few times because he's very patient, isn't he? Now, let me ask you this. Where do you think these thoughts came from that came in these people's mind to raise these questions? Do you think they were inspired by the Holy Spirit? The devil's at work in them, isn't he? Sometimes through people, sometimes through talking with each other, but there's a spirit at work trying to undermine their father's love for them, isn't it? Isn't that what it really boils down to? He's not going to do what he said. He doesn't love us like he says he does. It just seems too great. And let me ask you, do you think the devil is leaving any of us alone in this room tonight? He didn't leave Adam and Eve alone. He didn't leave Israel alone. And that he's not fighting with us with all the spiritual forces he can muster to get us to doubt our father's love and concern. I think he does. And he knows, this is something I believe the devil knows, that the father's love for us and us knowing it as individual Christians and as an assembly is the foundation for everything else. Because, listen, once you doubt your father's love, the father's love for you, you have, it takes away your faith for forgiveness, for healing, for eternal life, for provision, for suffering, or anything else. It just robs you of your joy. And you feel you're a slave and not a son. And here, if he can destroy the foundation that God is our Father and we are his children, guess what? He will destroy us. Or individually or collectively, however. And that's what's going on today in American society. And that's just going to bring us up to prove the point. So God has designed and created this world with numerous metaphors in creation to help us to understand spiritual truths. For instance, he talks about mountains all through the Bible, and they symbolize what about God? His majesty, his steadfastness, his protection. And in the Psalms, it talks about the mountains are like the righteousness of God. Jesus in John 15 talked about what? He used the vine and the branches to, to demonstrate to us a spiritual truth of what? Our union with Christ and how his life flows into us, right? He uses another thing everyone would know about, including today, about the farmer sowing his seed. So we understand about how the word of God goes out and how it's received or not received, right? So that's the way God works. And listen, he's given us earthly fathers and households to help us understand his fatherly love for us. But we can understand how God is our heavenly father when we consider our earthly fathers, or if yours was no good, someone else's earthly father that you see was the way it ought to be, right? Even though, don't we know that in all these illustrations, the best earthly father cannot come close to be, compare as God is our father, right? That's the way it is. So in Luke 11, Jesus says, even earthly, evil fathers, he calls them, give their children bread and not rocks, fish and not snakes, Eggs and not scorpions. Evil earthly fathers do what? Even they, he says, show care and love. And by this, we can know, he says, that our heavenly father loves and cares for us, us that much more. He's saying that's just a small degree of what a father. He says, your heavenly father loves and cares for you that much more. More than you could imagine. So listen, what is Satan twisted and distorted to give people? If God has set up that image of a father, what has he gone out of his way to twist and distort 
so that people of this world everywhere have a distorted image of God. Earthly fathers, hasn't he? And especially in America. So I looked, I didn't read the whole book, but a man wrote a book describing the America we live in, and the title tells all about the book. It's called The Fatherless Generation. And he writes that unlike in his book, unlike the fathers that Jesus described as giving bread, fish, and eggs, he said the fathers of America are abandoning their homes at alarming rates. Listen to this, in just the USA alone, in this country, over 33% of youth, over 25 million kids, that is a lot, over 25 million kids as we sit here tonight are fatherless and they're searching for dad. No dad in their home of any sort. So one-third of America's youth are doing what then? They are searching for love and acceptance. And here... This guy was describing, they've done research on this because they know their fathers abandoned them, even though it had nothing to do with them necessarily, personally, and probably not. They're living with rejection, which leads to feelings of inadequacy, which leads to shame. And because God's not there to give them the love and approval that God has built into us, you can't get away from it. He's made us this way, right? If you've got kids, you know how it is. Your kids want your approval don't they? They do. If you haven't recognized that yet, you need to wake up. So these kids, because they don't have that dad there to give them that approval and love that they need, they're screaming as he says, notice me. Somebody's got to get that need fulfilled somehow, right? And so they want to say, look at my blog. Follow my tweets. Look at all my tattoos all over my body, right? See my Instagram pictures. And girls let guys use them. And guys have to show that they're macho. And so they'll fill that void of that approval with sex, drugs, gangs, and alcohol. That's what happens. This country's a mess. And here's what this man wrote. Listen to this. Fatherlessness is the most harmful demographic trend of this generation. It is the leading cause of declining child well-being in our society. It is also the engine driving our most urgent social problems, from crime to adolescent pregnancy to child sexual abuse to domestic violence against women. Yet, and they know this is the case, yet despite its scale and social consequences, fatherlessness is a problem that is frequently ignored or denied. And he went on to say fatherlessness may soon become the defining characteristic of American culture. And listen to these statistics. 63%, 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. Almost all of them don't have a dad. They run away from home. 85% of children showing social disorders are from fatherless homes. And 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. I mean, those are some high numbers. We're not talking 20%, 15%. That'd be high enough, wouldn't it? 70, 80, 90% of these problems are caused by homes that don't have fathers. And if that doesn't strike you to tell the story, listen to this short excerpt from this article written in 2012 by the Society for Personality and Psychological Review. That sounds pretty heady. It's not that complicated. <laughs> Listen to what they wrote, though. A father's love contributes as much and sometimes more to a child's development as does a mother's love. And most people wouldn't think that. That is one of the many findings in a new large-scale analysis of research about the power of parental rejection and acceptance in shaping our personalities as children and into adulthood. When it comes to the impact of a father's love versus that of a mother results from more than 500 studies. That's not 500 people. That's 500 independent studies done suggests that the influence of one parent's rejection, oftentimes the father's, can be much greater than the other's. 
listen to this. One important take-home message from all this research is that fatherly love is critical to a person's development. The importance of a father's love should help motivate many men to become more involved in nurturing child care. And let me just say this. Just because you sleep at your home at night, if you are not around to help your wife out, you fall into this category. That's something to think about. It's never there to help with the kids. So, I believe that knowing, believing, and experiencing our Heavenly Father's love is critical to our spiritual development. They're saying, no, that when the Father's love is critical to a child's development, I'm saying, I'm done with the, talking about the USA problem, okay? Because I'm moving on into us here spiritually, which is where we're at. But what I'm showing is the devil is actively, whether we realize it or not, he's trying to undermine the Father's love for us. And it's tearing our society apart. It's ruining our country. And without a clear knowledge of God the Father's love for you, I'm saying you'll make little progress in faith or holiness. And I'd like to say a whole lot more about that than I can tonight. Well, listen, J.I. Packer, he wrote a book. I mean, it's been around for a long time, and I've had it, and I've never bothered reading it. But it's called Knowing God, and he's got a section in the back. If you got that book, go home and read it. It's called Sons of God. And he deals with the fact of what we're talking about tonight. But in that, here's what he wrote. He says, listen to this now with what we're saying. Critical to know. He says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, you want to know how much you or me, let's ask ourselves this question. How much do we really understand Christianity? He said, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. He says, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, and prayers and his whole outlook on life. He says this. It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. That's a heavy statement. But I'll tell you, I think he's right. So what he's saying is, for one to understand, the ones that understand Christianity are the ones that live and understand and live in the knowledge that Almighty God is their Father. And they never get over it. They never get over it. They marvel. And that's the way it was with John, the disciple Jesus loved. He never got over it. And he doesn't want us to get over it. Let's go back to our text and read it again. And talk about it for a minute. What does he write here? Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. So I've been going through teaching a series in prison on First John. And we've been looking what John does. He gives all kinds of tests to see if you pass them. So you don't have to live in doubt whether you have eternal life. That's what the book's all about. And he's right here at this statement in three one. He's right in the middle of giving proof of the new birth. It's right there. Look up in one verse above in, chapter tw- in verse 29 of chapter 2. He says, if you know he is righteous, you know everyone that does righteousness, the ones that do what's right, it doesn't matter what they say, they are the ones that are born of him. That's how you can know if you're born of God, if you're doing righteousness. If you're not, you're kidding yourself. He's right in the middle of making that point. When he stops here in three one and just bursts out an exclamation about the overwhelming love of God. It's like he's writing along, making this point, because he gets back into it here in a few verses. But it's like he says, wait a minute, excuse me just a minute. I'll get right back to my point. But I've got to tell you something first. I've got to say this. And what does he start off? He says, behold. I mean, every word, not to me, every word's not always important in every verse. But in this one, it is. It really is. And he says, behold. And what is that? You can't just skip by that. He's saying, wait a minute. Behold, let's stop and smell the roses. We gotta look at this. It means to look, to see, to behold, to gaze at. So I was telling those guys in prison, you know, how many people have ever been to the Grand Canyon in here? So anyone that's been there would know what I'm talking about. If you haven't been there, you just need to go. Well, listen, so he's saying, look, 
and behold, it's something to behold. If you go to the Grand Canyon, it's like you come up in the parking lot and you get there. And when you hit that, can you just casually walk past the Grand Canyon, Johnny? Ain't no way. It's like one of the marvels of this earth, isn't it? You just stand there. And when I saw it, I was like, wow. And I just stood there and looked and looked. And I'm trying to take it all in. It's like, behold, that's what he's talking about here. I mean, it's like you look at that and you say, this is unreal. I've never seen anything like this in my life. I've seen pictures of it. I've seen movies. And they none of it you can't capture this. It's awesome, as much as I hate that word, but it really is. The Grand Canyon really is awesome. And John's saying, hey, look, God's love compared to the Grand Canyon is nothing. Behold, this amazing, unbelievable, overwhelming look, look of God. Look at it. Behold it. And he goes on to say, behold, what manner. And so different translations will say what kind, what sort, what manner. The NIV and the NAU say how great. But the Greek literally says, from what country. It's like, from what country? Where, where is this? We've never seen anything like this. Nothing like we've ever seen before. So when Jesus stilled the storm at sea in Matthew 8, 27, and he gets back and they see what happened, it says the men marveled at what he did. And they said, what kind of man? It's the same word. What kind of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. We've never seen a man like this before. Where is he from? And John's saying that's the way it is with the love of the Father. It's a love like we don't know. We've never experienced in our life. The best of parents don't even come close to it. It's otherworldly is what he's saying. Behold what manner of love, the love of whom? And what does it say next in our verse? Behold what manner of love, the Father. And he's not talking about the great cosmic force of the universe, is he? He's talking about the supreme person in the Godhead. He's described as God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. He who is the blessed and only potentate, that means sovereign. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. What a description. That's First Timothy 6, if you want to write that down. So we get there that He is the one who is unapproachable. He's out there, transcendent from us, other than us, isn't He? But He's also the same one that Jesus described as He's concerned about the grass and the birds and about you and me, what we eat and drink. The one who is called the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, Ephesians 1, yet we can pray to Him, all of us at the same time, and pray how? Our Father, can't we? Unapproachable light, but yet we can approach Him through Jesus Christ, can't we? And what has this Father done with His love? What does it say, Beloved, Or behold, what manner of love the Father, and what does it say? He's bestowed that love on us. And that's translated variously as bestowed or given. But this is one case, I don't generally like the NIV, but the NIV uses the word lavished. And I really do believe that that gives the sense of what's being said here. And John is saying, behold, look, see, The astonishing love the Father has lavished on us. Because here's what the Bible does not teach, that God just trickles His love on us. You know, they have farms where they were literally set it up to they're just trickling just enough water to get that plant going, right? They don't want to waste any. Oh, God's love's not like that. He lavishes His love on us. doesn't trickle it. He lavishes it. He pours it out on us. And that's what it says in Romans 5.5. It says the love of God, I love the King James, not really. It says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Shed abroad, what does that mean? 
It means to pour out. The love of God is poured out in our hearts. Not a trickle. Through the Holy Spirit. F.B. Myers says this, the love of God, I like this. The love of God towards you is like the Amazon River flowing down to water a simple daisy. How much water does it take to water a daisy? You could put it in a little can, couldn't you? But he said the love of God towards us isn't like that. He's not trickling it on us. It's the Amazon River coming our way. We just have to open our hearts to receive it, don't we? And the last part of that was it say, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed what? On us. You and me. That's what he says. That's who he's bestowed this this amazing love, unbelievable love on us, the likes of you and me. And when did that happen? When did God pour out his love on us? After we were saved? (laughs) It's not what the Bible says. The Bible didn't say once we were saved, he's pouring out this love. Here's what it says in Romans 5, 8. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he didn't wait for us to become lovable before he loved us, did he? No way. But he did it when? When we were wicked. When we hated him. That's when the Amazon River came our way. And we should be so thankful for it. Because here's how the Bible describes sinners. And listen to this list. This is all from the Bible. And see if you find your old man here. A description of your old man. Describes sinners as arrogant, boastful, lovers of money, lovers of self, selfish, disobedient to parents. Twice he says that in Romans and 2 Timothy. And here's the uns. There's a lot of them. Unthankful, unkind, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, untrustworthy. Filled with greed, wickedness, envy, murder, deceit, malice, hateful, backbiters, haters of God, and enemies of God. Don't you guys be looking at each other, because it's you, every one of you. Just kidding, y'all. But listen, that list, that list covers every single person in this room, I mean, without exception. Without exception. We were all lost at one time, weren't we? You better hope you were. You better claim something on that list. Because God only saves the lost, didn't he? He came to seek and save the lost. So that means it's that two-year-old, that cute little two-year-old. And I thought I could name some of them. There's a lot of cute little two-year-olds in here. But it says on that list was selfish and disobedient to parents. So it covers a little two-year-old, and we could go younger than that, but to make a point that their parent says, come here, and they just look up at them like, and they say it again, and it's the same look, right? What's, What's coming out in that? Or it's the most saintly, older person in this room. And I will say, Mrs. Wilder is, to me, it. She is the Mother Teresa of our church. (laughs) She is. But it covers her too, doesn't it, Mrs. Wilder? At one time, the Bible says she was a hater of God. I couldn't imagine Mrs. Wilder hating a cockroach. (laughs) But all of us were haters of God. You know, I looked at that list, I mean, every one of them, and I thought of how I was before I came to the Lord, and I thought, all of that, I mean, without exception, all of it was me. I was that list. And he says, he's bestowed his love on us. Couldn't be more wicked people, right? That list describes the fruit that we displayed when we manifested the nature of our spiritual father. And Jesus told the Jews, you are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father, you will do. And every person in this room, he was your father, my father, for some period of your life, and still may be for some in here. We were by nature, Ephesians 2 says, what? Children of wrath. Objects of God's wrath. 
He's writing that to Christians. And so our nature coming forth brought God's wrath upon us. Hovering over us. And we were headed for an eternal hell. Having your eyes open to that is what it takes to be saved. You don't realize your wretched condition before God. How can you be saved? You don't see that you deserved hell and were headed to hell. How can you be saved? You can't. But look, John now says, behold, but look, the amazing love of the Father. Us, me, who deserve to be called the sons of Belial. Cursed children, the Bible would have called us. We were like the prodigal who would go to his father and came back and said, I am no more worthy to be called your son. That's the way we should have been, right? No more worthy to be called your son. And John says now, he says, I am overwhelmed. Behold, the manner of love the Father has shed, lavished on me, on us. The Father of glory would love us enough to call us his children. Behold, the manner of love the Father has given on us that we should be called the sons of God. Talk about don't deserve it. Haters of God. And yet he loved us and made us his sons. Oh, and how about that song we sing? One day, the Father of glory. What did he do? The Father of glory. He reached down with his righteous right hand. I mean, I love that song. And he saved me. And what did he do? Gave us a story. Oh, and I can't help but tell it again. You should have that in your heart. I'm telling you, if John was here, the Apostle John, it'd be his favorite song. He'd be jumping up and down. You'd hear him singing at the top of his lungs. Because here's why I know that. And I'll tell you what, when he wrote this epistle, he's at least, it's 60 years. He's an old man. It's been 60 years since he had Jesus fellowshipping with him in a human form on this earth and had been resurrected. 60 years. And he still hadn't gotten over it. Had he? And here's the question. Have you already gotten over it? Turn, if you would, to Galatians 4. In Galatians 4, beginning in verse 4, we read this. It says, but when the fullness of time was come, God. Now, just a little aside here. If you all don't haven't figured this one out, in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writing, he will say God as shorthand for God the Father. Almost always. He doesn't always write. Sometimes he'll call God the Father. A lot of times when he's saying God, and you'll see, it's just shorthand for God the Father. So he says here, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a slave or a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Jesus Christ. And look back in verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time was come, God did something, didn't He? What did he do? It says he sent forth his son. You know what that is right there? That's love in action. How else do you know love except it's love in action, right? And what about this verse? For God so loved the world. And how did he show how much he loved the world? It says he gave. He's a giving God. He gave his only begotten son. That's how much he loved all of us, right? And God's... Love in action had a high price because the reason he sent his son was to what? To redeem us, wasn't it? Look in verse 5. Sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Why? To redeem us, to buy us back from slavery. That's what the word redeem means, to buy back from slavery with the idea of setting someone free. And why did he do that? He says that 
Here's the reason that we might receive the adoption of sons, that we could be adopted into his family. Took us out of the devil's family and put us into his. Haters, we hated him, but he says, hey, you know, you think about it. It's one thing to take somebody that hates you and make him your servant. And it's another thing to take somebody that hates you and be a friend with them. Abraham Lincoln did that all the time. But it's a completely different thing to take somebody that hates you and make them a member of your family with all the rights and privileges and love of everyone else in that family. And that's what God has done. Love and action at a high price. And our adoption into his family, this redemption, it was an enormous cost. You know, I looked up U.S. News and World Report. Some of you that have adopted kids could probably know this better than me. But it said on the U.S. News and World Report, the average adoption in the USA costs from eight, between eight and forty thousand dollars in the USA. And in other countries, it's fifteen to thirty thousand dollars to adopt a child. That seems like for some of you, that'd be a ton of money, wouldn't it? Beyond your means. But the price of our adoption, it wasn't silver and gold, was it? That's what Peter said. We weren't redeemed with silver and gold. The price of our adoption was blood. That's what Peter says. The precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it cost God to have us adopted in our family. And I would say it's more costly than we will ever fully comprehend. For the Father to adopt us, it cost Him the death, suffering, humiliation, and unbelievable agony of His dear Son, His only beloved. The one He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The one He loved from all eternity. He had to give Him up to what we talked about a while back. All of the agony in the garden, all the brutal treatment, just so that me and you could be adopted into his family. Who does that? Behold, what manner, what kind of love is that? We don't know that, do we? We don't know anything about that. Just so worthless worms paid that price, so worthless worms like you and me could be in his family. And you say, well, hey, Jesus is the one that suffered, yeah. But you don't think, he gave us another type. You don't think it cost Abraham to have to offer up his son Isaac are any of you in here parents? Could you imagine having to offer one of your children so I could have life? And I told you I hated your guts and did everything I could to ruin your life? And you're going to give one of your own children up? You think that doesn't cost something? That didn't cost the father something? And I'll give you a scriptural proof that it cost him something. Listen to this. And this is what love is. The love of the father towards us. Listen to this. In this was manifested. This is how we see the love of God toward us. You want to know how we know that? Because God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him, it says. And herein is love. You want to know? It says herein. Here's how you can understand love. Not that we loved God because we didn't, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. His son's life and blood was the only thing that God was angry with us. He was. It says he's angry with the sinner every day. Propitiation means you have to appease his anger. And he had to send his son to have his anger appeased. That's how much he's saying. That's how you know what love is. 1 John 4, 9 to 10. And listen, these verses we just read here in Galatians are telling us that God's purpose in sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world was so that you and I could receive adoption into the family of God and be called the sons of God. Let's read it again. But when the fullness of time was come, God the Father sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. I mean, honestly, do we know, do we, have you thought about what a privilege that is? That is a privilege we need to ponder and meditate on constantly and not just make it a doctrine or another message we heard one time. And I'm serious about that. We need to heed John's admonition. Behold, look, 
gaze on what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we sinners should be called the sons of God. And when we do that, when you start thinking about that, you can come to the New Testament and read it with new eyes, can't you? With a heart that realizes how much the Father cares and loves you. As we long for any father to do, right? That's how we can read the New Testament. And listen, it'll never read the same once you see it that way. So why don't we make a little application here? You're like, well, okay, God loves me. But why don't we need to worry about our needs, food, clothing, paying the rent, a job? So Jesus told us not to be anxious, didn't he? He said... We're not to worry about what to wear and what to eat and why. Why did he tell us that? Because it's like good psychotherapy and keep us from getting ulcers? I don't know a guy that's worrying himself to death at prison. He's got ulcers that are bleeding. That's not why he said that, is it? Why did Jesus tell us not to worry about what we eat, our jobs, our money coming in? He said, because your heavenly father, Matthew or Luke 12, knows that you have need of these things. And like any good dad, he'll take care of you, won't he? That's what we have to rest in. And he went on to say, this is one of my favorite verses, Luke 12, 32. He went on in that same thing, talking to him, don't worry about God taking care of you and provision and all. He said, fear not. Don't be afraid. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's his good pleasure to give it to us. The NAU, I like this, it says, your father has chosen gladly. If you're his child, he's chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And we're going to worry? We're going to worry about where that next job's coming from? How we're going to pay the rent? He says he's chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And that means we are not bothering him to ask, are we? (laughs) Not when he says he's to fear not and he's chosen gladly to help us. You know, Dr. Freeman, I'll never forget this on a tape. I don't know if I got this story 100% right, but this is the essence of it. It's been a few years. But I was remembering he's talking, I think, along these lines. And he said at the time, I mean, this would have been a lot of money. It was either five or $10,000 piece of equipment he needed for his tape ministry. And he said, you know, I realize God the Father loves me as his son. And he said, so I sat on the end of my bed and I said, Father, as your son, I need $5,000 for this. And I thank you for it. Amen. And like he said, do you think the money came? And you're like, well, you wouldn't have shared the testimony if it didn't. It came. Because let me ask you this. We've got to look at our earthly fathers. As a father, when your child comes up and asks you for lunch money, what do you do? Tell him fast? (laughs) I mean, if our earthly fathers will do that... How much more Heavenly Father, no matter what the amount is, right? Is He limited in that way? And I'll tell you, He gave to me, I want to say this, I've said it here before, but it is, I've never forgotten it. It is one of the best illustrations of our Heavenly Father's care for us. He says, all God the Father is asking us to do is to be like a little child, isn't He? And I've said this, but I'll say it again. But He just wants us to reach up and put our hand in His, like your little boy will or girl, to cross the street. And just allow Him to take care of you and guide you through life. Just put your trust in your Heavenly Father. I mean, it's a simple illustration, but it's the best. So what about healing? How does this help us with healing? So, you know, when Jesus was moved with compassion and healed the multitudes, you know what was going on there? He was displaying the heart of the Father towards the sick. And I'll tell you an error, I think we, not an error, we're not being taught an error, I'm just saying, in our thinking, I think, tell me if you don't agree with this, I think we tend to put Jesus doing these miracles and the Father's just off somewhere else. And that's not the Bible. And so, if you would, please turn to John 14 and I'll show you that that's not the Bible. So I'm saying when Jesus did His miracles and works, we're seeing the Father at work. Clearly, and we could look at more than one place that we're going to look at, but I think this one here ought to explain it pretty well. So in John 14, 
in verse 8, it says this, Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and, it, and it'll be sufficient. Just show us the Father, it'll be sufficient. And Jesus looks at him and says, have I been so long time with you, and you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen whom? And so why are you asking, he says, why sayest thou, show us the Father? And look what he goes on to say, believe not that I am in the Father and the Father in me. You can't divide God up. God is one essence. You don't divide him up. So when you have the Son, you have the Father and the Holy Spirit. And it works that way around. They're in each other. You, you can't divide them up. They're not the same. But you can't divide the Godhead up in that way. And Jesus is saying that because... Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, he says, we think it's his words. He says, I don't speak of myself. Isn't that what it says? Well, who's doing the speaking? The Father that what? Dwells in me. Now, he switches from words to works. It says what? He's the one that does the works. And he says this more than once. So, yeah, Jesus is healing, but who's healing? He says, verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me. Why? For the very work's sake. Well, listen, we heard Brother Hamilton just recently. I thought it was a really good message. And then the Wednesday, very few people showed up. I thought it was really good. I liked it. Mark chapter 5, and he's teaching on Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue and the sick girl. Here's one thing I want to say about that in that Mark 5. At the beginning of that, I believe it starts in verse 22. You don't have to turn there. But it says when Jairus saw Jesus, that it says he fell at his feet. And it says he besought him greatly, is what the King James says. Or you could say the New King James says he begged him earnestly. He is desperate. I think he brought that out, didn't you? I believe you did. I thought that was a great point. And you know what he said? He is, he is at his feet, the ruler of a synagogue, an important man, falling at the feet of Jesus when he sees him. And he says, my thugatrion, oh, big Greek word, my thugatrion, my little daughter, is what it means. My little daughter lies at the point of death. And he said to Jesus, I pray you, and I guarantee you, it wasn't just this real, I pray thee, come and heal her. No, well, it's like he's begging earnestly. I pray thee, come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. And how many of our, us in here that are parents can relate to that story? I mean, I can. How many of us have been your little son or daughter is in a trial and things don't look good? So sick. And you see their suffering. You'd take their place if you could, wouldn't you? I would. When my kids are like that, man, I'd be like, I gladly would take your place. It just tears your heart out, doesn't it, to see them suffering? And we would we say, what do we say? Jesus, I pray, come and heal this child of mine. That they may what? That they may live. That they may come alive again, right? And run and laugh. That's what we say. That's what this man say. He just wants to see his daughter like she was. Running and laughing and getting in his arms. We can relate to this, can't we? To what this father's going through. And I believe Jesus looked at that man and was moved with compassion. It doesn't say that in the Word, but it does in other places. And I think he probably thought, I, I can see your heart as a father. And I see your distress as a father with this sick girl you have, your sick little daughter. It's at the point of death. And I think now he's saying, now I want to display for you and for SCA as they read this account, the heart of my heavenly father. I see your heart and concern for this young girl, but because the Father's doing the works through Jesus, He's displaying the Father's heart towards the sick. That should encourage us in our faith, shouldn't it? And the Bible says that He went with Him. And after a brief delay, what did He do? He raised that little girl from the dead, did more than what this Father asked. And we just got through reading. That didn't happen unless God the Father initiated it. He says, I can't do anything of myself. I only do what I see the Father. That's the Father working through Jesus. Having pity on that man. And Jesus would say, if you're naturally evil, earthly father, as Jairus would have been, he would have said, if he can give you good gifts and want your healing because he loves you as his child, 
Jesus says, how much more shall your heavenly Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? How much more? You want to see your child healed? You think the Father doesn't care? You need healing yourself? You think your Father doesn't care? You don't treat your children that way. Why would we think God is any different? And listen to this. He says he'll give good things to them and ask him, and would everyone amen that healing's a good thing? Thank you all. So listen, a good thing, Acts 10.38, we all know this. It says, God, the Father, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good things. Healing all, not just a few, that were oppressed by the devil, the one that had stolen their allegiance. Healing all that were oppressed of the devil. In the end of that verse, we don't hear it much. Why was Jesus able to do that? It says, for God was with him. And if you read Acts chapter 4, when they got brought before the Sanhedrin and rebuked, they went back to the, the company. And they're praying to God the Father. And they say, look what these people are doing. They're fulfilling Psalm 2. They're railing on you. And they say, to the Father they're praying this prayer. Stretch forth your hand and heal through the name of Jesus. But they asked the Father to stretch forth His hand. And the place was shaken. That's the Father's approval. Behold, what manner of love the Father has towards us. We need to get that in our spirits, don't we? Because listen, what did Paul say? What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he's talking about the Father. Because he goes on to say, He that spared not his own Son was willing to give the ultimate, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Where do you see Jesus ever turning down a sick person that he wouldn't heal him? And that's the Father saying he won't. And he says with him, he'll freely, we don't have to twist God's arm, freely give us all things. So what is the good thing you need? Maybe you're really going through a tough time tonight and wish that you had, maybe you don't have your father anymore, you wished you had a dad to comfort and encourage you. And I think Paul needed that. And listen to this, he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 1, if anyone's going through a tough time tonight. He wrote this, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He dwells in unapproachable light, but for us as His children, guess what He is? He's the God of all comfort, who comforts us, Paul said, in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. None of us have known the physical suffering Paul went through, the rejection of him personally and his ministry, right? The isolation where he's sitting in these cold, dark prison cells and the abandonment of all his supposed friends and co-workers at times. He's left by himself. All have fled, he said. In 2 Timothy. Yet, guess what? He is not depressed. Why? Because he knew of the comfort of his heavenly Father. Is that right? That's what we just read. He said he's the one that comforts us in all our tribulation. Not just some of them. All our tribulation. So I'll end by saying if we'll just look to him. You know, when when Lisa and I lost the baby back, it was the most, tore me up worse than anything in my life at that time. And yet, it didn't take the pain away. I still cried. But God would visit me in a way that was, gave me a supernatural peace in His presence. And I knew Him then as the God of all comfort. He is that. And you know what? That helps you when, when i got to talk to prisoners that are going through things. I can a little bit know what I'm talking about. And that's what Paul says, that we can comfort others. We experience His comfort. It helps us, but then we can help others, can't we? We just need to look to him for that. And Peter said what? We can come to our Father and do what? Cast all our cares on him. And why? Because he cares for us. For you. And do you 
really believe that your Father in Heaven cares for you? Do you really believe that? Because I think the devil's trying to steal that from us. He tries to steal it from all of us, if we're honest. No one would want to admit that. But that's what he's after. Do we really believe that God cares for us? And let me ask you, unlike Israel, can we trust in our Father's love? Can we trust in that? Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And I'll just ask, let's just not leave here tonight and put that on the shelf. But let's think about it. Think about that some tomorrow, that verse. Meditate on it until it becomes the fabric of our soul. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we didn't talk about this tonight, but Lord, you are the God of all revelation. If you don't open our eyes, Father, then we're ignorant. And I just ask that you'll open all of our eyes and all of our hearts and enlarge our hearts, Lord, to see that you are our Father and to be able to receive the love that you want to lavish on us. Help us to enlarge our hearts so we can receive it in a way we never have and have that assurance that we can cry out, Abba, Father, when we're in trouble, and that you'll be there to help us. Just ask that you'll show all of us that, and we just thank you, Lord, for your word that you've given us, that we can know the revelation of you as our Father, that the world doesn't know, other religions don't know. We're so thankful for that, and we receive that from you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up. Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Master. And I wonder how He could love a sinner
somebody that's around you and shake their hand and say, glad to see you, and you're dismissed. Amen. Amen. Amen.